Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The other day, I came to the last little piece of a fresh peach pie my wife had made. It was the last piece. And I let it sit there for a few minutes looking at it. The longer you look at the last piece, the more you think something needs to go with that last piece. I had run out of ice cream. And I had to get another scoop of ice cream to make it all come out exactly even. And today we come to the last message in a series called Why Believe? Questions Non-Christians Ask. And it seems like we could just go on and on. There's a little bit more I'd like to say about this subject. <laughs> but we must take the last bite and move on with light. Amen? And so we do. And the question today that the non-Christian asks, which we shall take up, is this one. Does man still need a supernatural God? This is the eighth in these questions. Does man still need a supernatural God? Our focus today is to say simply out of the scripture that the cross is the ultimate answer to man's basic questions. Every basic issue man has is ultimately brought back to the cross. Forbes magazine just recently celebrated its 75th anniversary. They published an article by a variety of well-known writers from a variety of disciplines. And the point of the article was this. Why are we still so unhappy and when you read all of those articles and you read all that the great minds of all the disciplines had to say, the answer is still this. We are a troubled civilization primarily because we have lost a moral and spiritual center. That's enough for me right there. Just to say thank you, that answers my question. Let's go on and get a ham biscuit for breakfast. But the question is larger than that. No, the world would say, man no longer needs a supernatural God. But the greatest writers of the greatest fields, trying to explain why we are so unhappy, said there is still something about man that requires a transcendent, a, a moral and spiritual guide that is larger than we are and comes from outside ourselves. Atheism has maybe had its day. We're beginning to turn. Etienne Bourne said that atheism is the deliberate, definite, dogmatic denial of the existence of God. It is not satisfied with appropriate truth or even relative truth, but claims to see the ins and outs of the game quite clearly being the absolute denial of the absolute of absolutes. Isn't that interesting? Absolute denial. Nothing is absolute except the absolute denial of the absolute. Isn't that hypocritical? But anyway, an atheist, said the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, is a person who maintains that there is no God. That is, that the sentence, God exists, expresses a false proposition. It is a person who rejects belief in God. But perhaps the most famous atheist of our day, the Robert Ingersoll of the 70s and 80s and 90s, is Madeline. Now, let me show you how 
well-known she is. Nearly every person in this auditorium could finish the last two parts of her name. Madeline, say it. Isn't that interesting? You know her better than you know. You don't even know the Apostle Peter's last name, do you? But you know O'Hare. <laughs> I find that remarkable if you think about it for a moment. This is what she said in her book, What on Earth is an Atheist? We need a decent, modern, sophisticated, and workable set of standards by which we can get along with ourselves and with others. We atheists try to find some basis of rational thinking on which we can base our actions and beliefs, and we have it. Oh, we do, do we? We accept the technical philosophy of materialism. It is valid philosophy which cannot be discredited. If that's true, why are so many people with so much material things so unhappy? Ha, ha, ha. Go on. Essentially, materialism's, materialism's philosophy holds that nothing exists but natural phenomena. Now, that's why I say the question is, do we still need a supernatural God? Or do we just need a, a God who's a kind of a natural, benign, passive grandfather sitting over here in the side saying, well, do my job. Or do we need a supernatural God? Listen to what she said. Essentially, materialism's philosophy holds that nothing exists but natural phenomena. Materialism is a philosophy of life and living according to rational processes with intellectual and other capabilities of the individual to be developed to the highest degree in a social system where this may be possible. Problem is we've never found such a social system, have we? Actually, I'm thinking the farther along we get in our social development, the worse it is. I don't know whether we're getting any more civil than we used to be, biting men's ears and all that stuff. There are no supernatural forces, no supernatural entities such as gods or heavens or hells or life after death. There are no supernatural forces, nor can there be, she said. We atheists believe that nature simply exists. Now, if that explains things to you, you, you are cut from a different kind of a mold than I am because to tell me that something exists because it exists is to tell me absolutely nothing, give me no purpose and no meaning and no explanation about what is. That's the way I feel. And that's where she leaves me. Matter is, material is, and that's all there is. <laughs> well, <clears throat> God bless her. It's not satisfying to me. I want us today to look at our text very carefully. Remember what the prophet said? Man is withering because of a lack of knowledge about who God is. Start with verse 18. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, 1 Corinthians 1:18, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now watch the questions. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did never come to know God, God was well pleased that through the foolishness of the preaching of the message of the cross, that is, he could save those who believe. 
Jews ask for signs. Where is the power of God? Give me a supernatural sign. Greeks search for wisdom. Where is wisdom? I want to be wise enough to know God. I want to be wise enough to build a society that will help everybody come to their highest potential so we won't need God. Marx tried it and failed miserably. Hitler tried it and failed miserably. Stalin tried it and failed miserably. And when he died, Stalin shook his fist at God, but in the process, he killed 20 million of his countrymen in trying to build a society without God. And now we know the rest of the story. It was a terrible, horrible failure. Amen? Well, <clears throat> at the center of this issue, this passage says, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Can I say this? When all is said and done, arguing with anybody about the gospel or about God, the heart of every argument is the cross. The heart of it is the cross. I want to show you this morning that it is the cross that gives purpose and meaning to life. It is the cross which explains the basic questions of life. It is the cross that explains questions about ourselves. It is the cross that explains questions about God. At the center of this issue is the cross. And if we Christians are salt and light in this world, we're to give light regarding the cross. That's my premise. I want to prove that to you this morning. Our answers are to go to the cross. We show everybody meaning in life by the cross. The cross is where we find out what the purpose of evil is, what the purpose of suffering is, what the meaning of the individual is. Now, if the cross is the power of God, verse 24, it is preached to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, two things. What is it preached? The very things the world's looking for, power and wisdom. See it in verse 25, verse 24? We preach Christ, the power of God. The Jews seek a sign. They want to see supernatural miracle. Show me another miracle. Divide the waters again. There is no evidence that all the miracles of the Old Testament ever fostered any additional faith in the children of Israel because of their sin. And then Christ is shown as the wisdom of God in verse 24. There it is. The world's looking for power and wisdom. And where does power and wisdom come from? It comes from the cross. Now, here is the heart of the Christian's position. Listen to this carefully. We do not get to God by coming through human power or human wisdom. We come to wisdom and power through the cross by which we come to God. The world has got it exactly reversed. One doesn't get to the cross and God through human power and human wisdom. We come to true wisdom and power through coming to God by the way of the what? The cross. Power. Men try to get to God through power. Science, technology. We can clone a sheep. Isn't that nice? Problem is, we're not sure what to do with the power to clone. I mean, we've got all this knowledge. Technology is going to answer all our problems. Uh, my little old computer's got more in it than I'll ever learn how to. I just found out where the switch is. 
I got more knowledge available to me than I can ever use. I sat for two hours last April in a meeting of pastors and watched a man show me more knowledge coming off the internet than I could use in a whole lifetime of preaching. And my mind was, was just, I mean, technology actually just, it just boggles me. I, I am amazed by it. I wish I was 25 and could start all over again. Think what I could preach if I just had a computer 25, 35 years ago. Amen? How can you preach without a computer? But in the final analysis, looking for power to manage ourselves through science and technology has left us in a terrible state. In the magazine commentary, there was the report of Stephen Hawking. Do you know who Stephen Hawking is? He is a brilliant English scientist who is handicapped, has no power to speak except through a an automatic machine that, that uh, by the way, he speaks with an, with an American accent because it was made in America, even though he's British. But he gave a speech recently on is man free or is man determined? Is man the end result of evolutionary forces out of his control? Or is man free to make some choices before a loving God who gave him that freedom? Now, if you think science has the answers, Listen to this. He finally, at the end of an hour and a half talk, said, Is man determined? Yes. But since we do not know what is determined, he may as well not be. To which all the scientists present at the meeting said, What? Is that all there is? Yes, man is determined, but we don't know what he's determined for, so it doesn't make any difference. He might as well not be determined. Oh, now, you really have told me a lot. Thanks. Then he went on to say, however, now listen to this. This is the best science in the late 20th century has to offer. However, if we can keep from destroying each other for the next 100 years, sufficient technology will have been developed to distribute humanity to various planets, and then there will never be one tragedy or one atrocity which will eradicate us all at the same time. That's our best hope, is that technology will find a way to distribute us around so we won't murder each other. We'll put some on Mars and let them murder themselves on Mars. That's, he didn't say that, but that's the end result. Now, you mean to tell me that's the best, the best mind in science in 1997 can offer to us about a, an explanation as to why life exists? Come on. And, and you mean on the basis of that? We've got an anti-God campaign around the world that makes fun of Christians for their standards and their beliefs. You can have science if you want to. That's the best they've got to offer. I've had it. I think it's great, but it is never our master. It is always our servant. Amen and amen. What about education? For Paul says that the cross is not only the power of God, but the cross is the wisdom of God. Can we get to God by education? Now, I'm not on a rampage against technology, and I'm not on a campaign against education. I'm just telling you they are means to an end and not an end in and of themselves. They are servants, but they're never masters. 
out of the philosophies of the 19th century, a goal of developing a breed of young scholars who could explain God and teach us how to think so we wouldn't need God anymore. You say, how do you know that? You can read it in Jean-Paul Sartre. You can read it in Albert Camus. You can read it in Nietzsche. You can read it in Schopenhauer. You can read it in every one of the philosophers. There was a goal of developing young scholars who, who could help us so we would know that we didn't need God. As a result, Malcolm Muggeridge, just before he died, said, we have educated ourselves in imbecility. <laughs> we are so educated, we're imbeciles. He said, I didn't say that. I'm just quoting. I liked what George Will, in an article recently, he said, he said, we're so educated that there is nothing so vulgar left in our experience for which we cannot transport some professor from some university to justify it and explain why the poor creature did what he did. If you've got enough money, you can hire an expert witness to testify about anything and everything. And nothing is wrong. We can just talk. Nothing is so vulgar, it cannot be justified. So poor little fella, he raped 20 women and killed four and murdered five. What's, what's this guy's name uh, who, who killed Johnny, um, who killed the... Uh, they think killed the uh, Italian designer. What, what's it? Cunanan? Huh? Cunanan? Cunanan. They're trying to figure out Cunanan. We're so smart we can't even find the guy. You know, I, I think he... <laughs> it's interesting to watch the world. But, but what happened is we have gotten so smart we have believed that we can do almost anything and come to God. We don't need God anymore. Ted Turner said, now listen to this. I've got the quote. Ted Turner said, if we had had CNN in 1940, there would never have been Hitler or the Holocaust. Turner, I want you to explain to the people of Bosnia and Croatia why we have CNN Rwanda, why we have CNN today but we still have ethnic cleansing. If education could solve all a man's problems, why are we still murdering each other in the name of the past? Because we cannot forgive. You answer the question, Ted. I'm waiting for the answer. Back in 1965, author Paul Shearer said this. Listen to this carefully. One by one, the generation that refused to be bound by the Pope and refused to be bound by the church decided in an ecstasy, ecstasy of freedom that they would not be bound by anything, not by the Bible, not by conscience, not by God himself. From believing too much that never did have to be believed, they took to believing so little that for countless thousands, human existence and the world itself no longer seemed to make any sense. Poets began talking about the wasteland with ghostly lives, as Stephen Spender put it, moving among fragmentary ruins which have lost their significance. Nothingness became a subject of conversation. Nihilism, a motive. Frustration and despair, a theme for novelists, dramatists, and the edge of the abyss, as much of a nautical term among the intelligentsia as it was for explorers in the days of Columbus, which is what he called the end of the world. He thought it was flat. What do we say to these things? Do you remember several years ago? In fact, I used to sing this in high school assemblies. Believe it or not, I used to do high school assemblies. 
back in the dark ages of the middle 20th century when I was with Youth for Christ. In fact, I wound up speaking at a, <laughs> I wound up in a certain city in this state uh, preaching at a July 4th celebration the other week. Uh, Russ was with me. And uh, <clears throat> when I got there, I found out there was a crowd of 1,800 packed in this church and three-fourths of them were teenagers. And my message was not geared to teenagers. And man, I had to take a switch on my feet. Have you ever done that? You had to turn it completely around. And when I do that, I always revert back to some old material in order to get everybody's attention. And my mind went back 35 years to the old worn-out stories and, and stuff and lines and routines of my old high school assemblies. The only way I knew to keep them, I got to come up to date with some of those, but I never speak to crowds of just teenagers anymore. But I used to sing sometimes in high school after I would play Moon River on my trumpet. <laughs> Moon River. Does anybody, how many of you know the sound of Moon River? You remember it? Yeah, all you old birds do. <laughs> Moon River, wider than a mile. But there was a song. Do you remember this song? It was a, a haunting song. It went like this. The, the name of who will answer, who will answer, who will answer, who will answer. Anybody remember that song? And it laid down the frustration of man. Is our hope in walnut shells worn round the neck with temple bells or deep within some cloistered walls where hooded figures pray in shawls or high upon some dusty shells or in the stars or in ourselves? Who will answer? If the soul is darkened by a fear it cannot name, if the mind is baffled when the rules don't fit the game, who will answer, who will answer, who will answer? From the canyons of the mind we wander on and stumble blind, wade through the often tangled maze of starless nights and sunless days, hoping for some kind of clue, a road to lead us to the truth. But who will answer? You got an answer. The answer is Jesus. And the answer is the cross. There are four things I want to say out of this passage about the cross that help me to understand life and why we must have a supernatural God. The first thing is this. In the cross, I really truly for the first time see myself, and so do you. In the cross, I see myself. Look carefully at verse 18. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. Now he makes it personal. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there in the power of God revealed at the cross, I see myself for all I am. Because the cross symbolizes man's ugliness toward God and his rebellion towards God and his denial of God and his attempt to eradicate God. It's all there in the cross. And when you understand the cross, you understand yourself because you see yourself as a sinner, as the sinner which you really are. Ravi Zacharias in his book, Wonderful book to read, Can Man Live Without God, said at the Holocaust trials, there was only one judge, only one judge willing to accept responsibility for his crimes at Nuremberg there. And that judge, the most he would say is, I never intended the Holocaust to go so far. A member of the tribunal questioning him said this, 
He, he said, the first time you knowingly condemned an innocent man, you went too far. It was not the 5,000th time. It was the first time. You see, the problem of sin is not the volume of sin. It's the fact of sin. You don't need 5,000 sins to convict you before God. You only need one sin. And at the cross, I see myself in all my ugliness and all my rebellion because it is all symbolized in what man did to Jesus at the cross. It's all symbolized. I see myself in that cross. Malcolm Muggeridge said in his, in, in his book, In the Waning Years of His Life, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful. I now look back upon them with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, I say this, if it were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. And then he went on to say, this, of course, is what the cross signifies, and it is the cross more than anything else that has called me inexorably to Christ. Wow, think about that for a moment. In the cross, I see myself and you see yourself. Secondly, in the cross, I see the love of God. I see the love of God. For there is destroyed the wisdom of the wise, verse 19, the cleverness of the clever. There he asked the question, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. There at the cross, God demonstrated his love through salvation. Islam doesn't write about the character of the nature of God. It writes about the nature of God's writings and God's commands, but not about God. You know, I, I examined other world religions, and very few of them even deal with the nature of God. They deal with the nature of words. They deal with the nature of a message, but they don't deal with the nature of God. Only Christianity deals with the nature of God. And the cross preaches to me and declares to me, God loves me. It is so hideous. It is so bad. There's no reason it would happen unless God loved me. And the cross is valuable because there it reveals God cares for you and God cares for me. And that stands for all time. If I didn't know anything else, that gives meaning to everything in my life, that God really does love me. And it was all demonstrated at the cross. I asked myself the question, does God exist? Well, then that leads me, and I say yes, but it leads me to another question then, what is he like? And the answer to that question is, I know he loves me. And the scripture displays the nature of God. That's why you hear me talk in so much of this series on why I believe. I talk about who God is. Because nobody else can set the parameters for who our God is and nobody else can describe him. But we go to the word of God and let God disclose to us who he is. And now we know his nature. Amen? I see the love of God. That you can't get to God through man's wisdom. 
The way you're going to know the love of God is through the cross. And the cross will give you godly wisdom to know the love of God. The cross represents forgiveness. The cross gives meaning to Bosnia. It gives meaning to what's happened in this world. Without the cross, we wouldn't know why. The cross shows what forgiveness is, God forgiving us for our sin and how we ought to forgive. And thus it reveals when men don't forgive each other and turn and kill each other because they cannot forget the past. The cross. So in the final analysis, what you believe about life comes back to this. What you believe about God. Does God exist? And secondly, what kind of God is he? Well, he's a powerful God. And if he's the creator God, then he can do supernatural things anytime he wants to. Miracles are not just our lame intellectual way of explaining what we don't understand. Never has been, never was, never will be. Miracles are what God does when he wants. He, the creator, decides to, to impose himself upon his creation and do things for which we have no explanation. It's power man doesn't have. I see not only myself, I see the love of God, a personal God. The third thing I see in the cross is I see evil at its very ugliest. The cross shows me how very evil the whole world is. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles' foolishness. A stumbling block to the Jews because they thought the Messiah would be all health, wealth, and prosperity. They thought the Messiah would overthrow Rome. They thought the Messiah would do this and that. And when Christ didn't fit their idea of the Messiah, it became a stumbling block. It became a barrier to their believing in him. And so it reveals evil, the innocent Lamb of God. Christ crucified, revealed at the cross. And in so doing, he reveals the awfulness of man's sin. That's the reason the cross is a stumbling block. The cross is a stumbling block for that reason. Selfish ambition, personal power, greed, uh, uh, um, all of these things, uh, all of these things are challenged by the cross. Selfish ambition, greed, materialism, pride, they find the cross repugnant. It's foolishness. Why? Because they, the cross challenges these things. They make fun of humility. They make fun of, of meekness and virtue. But that is the way of the cross. I'm afflicted. I am sick. I have a syndrome called the obstacle syndrome. When I need to get to my kites... And I first have to move two ladders, three sets of weights, four boxes of books in order to get to my kites. That's the obstacle syndrome. For every time I move something that stands in my way of getting to what I want, I get a little bit more upset. How many of you are afflicted with the obstacle syndrome? Is there anybody else here like that? Anybody else? Any men by, by any chance afflicted by the obstacle syndrome? Or would you wives like to confess for your men? that they're afflicted with the obstacle syndrome. <laughs> I hate anything to be in the way. When I know what I want, I want to go get it. Get out of the way. Get everything out of the way. I don't like 5,000 things stacked up so you got to move, you know, uh, heaven and earth in order to get to a, a, a four-inch screw. And uh, that really does away with me. That's one of my pet peeves. Is there anybody in the choir like that? Yeah, I thought so. 
And see, how do we understand the meaning of anything evil in this world apart from the cross? There at the cross, I understand it because I see man's nature revealed. And I see that the Bible is congruous with this message. It all fits together. Man sinned, thus his nature is evil, thus he is capable of doing this. And, and it's all part of the overall purpose of redemption. And the cross gives me a way to see evil and wrong. And that's why it's a stumbling block. It stands in the way of personal power and greed and challenges selfishness openly. Finally, the fourth thing I see at the cross, I see life itself. I see life itself. To those who are the cold, Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. We don't need miracles to believe him. The wisdom of God, we don't have to find him through our own intellect. We are made wiser when we come to the cross and find God. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what, folks? Knowledge, wisdom. The Bible is clear. The cross redefines all of life. It gives meaning where there is no meaning. Meaninglessness does not come from having too much pain. It comes from having too much pleasure. Where do I learn that? I learn it at the cross. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure and things. That's why a full pantry and an expensive car by themselves leave us empty of meaning. And the cross stands at the central explanation of life. It addresses the basic questions and redefines life so that we, instead of seeing power and personal ambition and greed as good, we see humility and meekness and virtue as good. And it challenges everything we know about the awfulness of life. And without it, we have no hope and no meaning and nothing to look forward to except more of the same. But with a cross, I got a way to be forgiven, a way to be saved. I've got hope for the future. In Christ, we find consolation, coherence, and hope. G.K. Chesterton. I, I, this was so fascinating. I found it in Ravi Zacharias' book. I, I, I want you to hear this. G.K. Chesterton, the great author, when he was converted, said this. Our civilization has decided, and very justly decided, that determining the guilt or innocence of men is a thing too important to be trusted to trained men. He's talking about juries of peers. You know, you have a jury to try you. If it wishes for light upon that awful matter... It asks men who know no more law than I know, but who can feel the things that I felt in the jury box. In other words, if, if we want to get to truth, we don't have a jury. What would happen in this country if we had a jury of 12 lawyers determining the guilt and innocence of everybody? And Chesterton says, no, the law turns to plain common people. 12 plain common people. When it wants a library cataloged or the solar system discovered or any trifle of that kind, it uses up its specialists. But when it wishes anything done which is really serious, it collects 12 of the ordinary men standing round. The same thing was done, if I remember right, by the founder of Christianity. <laughs> he took 12 plain ordinary men and we call them what? Disciples disciples. 
Oh, I want to just stand up and sing that old hymn, Hallelujah for the Cross. Do you remember that? Does anybody here remember? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah, hallelujah, it shall never suffer loss. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Paul Brand, one of the greatest hand surgeons in the world, was a surgical resident in the London hospital. He just started. And a woman named Mrs. Twitty, 82 years old, had come in for some throat surgery. An artery in her throat ruptured. Artery or a vein. See, artery goes away from the heart and the vein comes to the heart. Is that right? It was one or the other. But the blood started pouring out of her mouth and there was no surgeon in the hospital. She was about to bleed to death, and they called for him. He was the nearest thing to a real doctor they had. First week surgical resident, I guess. And when he got to her, he didn't know what to do to stop the bleeding, except to open up the mouth of this 82-year-old woman, find where the rupture was, put his hand inside her mouth, put his finger on the hole, and compress it, until a real surgeon could be found. How long will this take? His hand grew weary. It grew tired. It was pained. It was cramped. And every time he would pull his finger off, the blood would gush out of her mouth again, and he could see the fear in her eyes that she was going to die because he would lose heart and not be able to stand there with his finger on that rupture of the artery. And he put his finger back there. And he said, my hand grew so tired and so weary and it was so cramped. He was standing there in that position an hour and 45 minutes till they could get a surgeon to come and cauterize or sew it up or do whatever he did. And he said, finally, he said, what kept me going was looking in her eyes and seeing the fear that she was going to die if I didn't keep my finger on that rupture. When the surgeon arrived, finally, he said, I pulled my hand out of her mouth. And he said, I know it was terribly uncomfortable for her. But when the surgeon finally arrived, I pulled my hand out of her mouth and the bleeding had stopped. But he said, I learned the meaning of self-sacrifice for the life of another. Surely that's what the cross does to us. It answers the question, what is this all about? It is God showing us how much he loves us. There at the cross, there was a rupture. For a moment, Christ gave his life and sacrificed himself. But God has his finger on the problem. He sees man's need and he knows man's need. It is at the cross where I come and give up my greed and I find that I am now generous. It is at the cross I give up my pride and I discover how to be humble by coming to the cross where I can't bring anything or add anything to what God has done. It is at the cross where I lay my selfish ambition 
and lay it all down. And God says, you are important only because I have touched you and I use you and bless you. It is at the cross I come in my anger and bitterness and I'm forgiven and now given the capacity to forgive somebody else. And when I see how the cross redefines life and it gives me a grid to put over uh, all the pain and the suffering and the, uh, uh, the, the violence and the hunger and the hurt of this world, it is then that the cross redefines life. Only through the cross do you come to see the genuine power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen and amen. Let's stand in prayer. Father, I thank you for the word and pray that you shall feed us by it and encourage us. And today I ask, Heavenly Father, that you will touch every one of our hearts. Show us what we need in our lives. Show us how the cross is your power to overcome greed, selfishness, lust, indulgence. Show us that the cross and the way of the cross is the way to see a world that is hungry to know you and is trying desperately to rebel against you but cannot. In Jesus' name, amen.